Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh. Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than Thou. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. By the time last week's episode aired, we still did not know the results of the 2020 presidential election. So let me just say it here and now. Thank God Joe Biden is the president-elect of the United States. To all of you who voted, organized, protested, and stress ate pints of ice cream on your couch for the entirety of last week, I salute you. While last weekend was marked by celebration, this week was marked by, well, the unknown. As Republicans continue to mount their efforts to steal this election by repeating claims of voter fraud without evidence, and now by refusing to peacefully transition to the Biden administration, our good old friend, existential dread, is back with a vengeance. 2020, it just keeps on coming, doesn't it? So today, I'm exploring two ends of this existential dread. Later on, we'll be joined by Pastor Mike McBride, a co-founder of the Black Church Pack and the National Black and Brown Gun Violence Prevention Consortium. He'll be answering a question that maybe popped up on your group threads at some point this year. Should we actually be scared? And should we be arming ourselves? But first, people of faith all over are tackling a question that may feel more immediate. What do we do with the Trump supporters in our lives? Almost immediately, Republican pundits and talking heads urged us to reach out to the Trumpies, to feel their pain and not gloat, that the next few months should be marked with forgiveness. Katy Perry under fire over her push to get this, to reach out to her family members who supported President Trump. How dare she? Well, friends, if you know me, and I hope you do by now, you know that didn't sit right with me at all. So I'm phoning a friend, the Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, to help me understand where we all go from here. Rabbi Danya, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I guess let's start here. How are you feeling? We are in Joe Biden's America, kind of. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Can I say in a C3 friendly, nonpartisan way that um, I'm excited that there's an, a, a new administration coming that will put forth um, hopefully better policies that will help more people? Yes. Um, even if there, there needs to be a little pushing in some directions from progressive advocates. Um, I think there will be few, fewer human rights abuses, and I'm excited about that. You know what? Same. And thank you for that measured response. <laughs> Today, I'm coming to you for your spiritual wisdom and your spiritual guidance. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen and heard the pleas that I've seen from talking heads on CNN Um, and maybe some well-meaning folks on Twitter who are insisting that we must use this moment, and and by we, I mean folks who voted for Joe Biden, that we must use this moment to reach out to Trump's followers to extend our forgiveness in order to begin to heal the divides of our country. So I am asking you, Rabbi Danya, as a woman of God, What is your response to some of these pleas that we are seeing? Okay. 
So in Judaism, there isn't the same emphasis on forgiveness that we see in parts of Christian culture and theology. Um, and I think there are parts of the Christian emphasis on forgiveness that are powerful and moving. Um, part of them are, you know, as uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian, called them, uh, you know, cheap grace. You know, there are ways that that sort of rushing to forgiveness without a measured conversation um, can be lacking. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's real. Um, in Judaism, our concern is about repentance and about doing the work of repair and of understanding harm caused and trying to address it in a meaningful way. And the forgiveness is very, very secondary. Um, there's a, an apology as part of the repentance process sometimes. And, you know, depending on what the thing is, like, you know, maybe the victim should not be petty and withhold forgiveness if the perpetrator is doing the real work. Um, but with very significant um, issues and in a lot of cases, and definitely if the perpetrator hasn't been doing the labor of repentance, there's no requirement to forgive. Um, so, you know, my That's question... That's a key difference. It is a key difference. Um, so, you know, in Judaism, the first step of this process is what we call cheshbon hanefesh, the accounting of the soul. It's about figuring out what did I do? Who have I been? What made me make those choices? What kind of impact did those choices have? Sometimes you need some help from people outside. Uh, you know, sometimes that work is kickstarted when somebody calls you up and says, you did me wrong, right? But we really try to push people to do the inner work to try to f- really understand their own impact. And for people who have made the choice to support someone who, even before the 2016 election, was inciting violence, was perpetrating, you know, racist speech in in a myriad of different ways, um, who had a record of of long before a presidential run of, you know, the Central Park Five, right? I mean, you know, this is the, the racism runs deep and has a long history. Whose record on um, consent is not really fantastic, right? I mean, this person, this is who we knew even before the Muslim ban, even before children were put in cages, Right. Even before, even before, even before all of these things that have happened over the last four years. And so the invitation that I haven't seen is for people who have made the choice to follow this man all the way into the voting booth a second time to really ask themselves some hard questions about what's going on and why and what animates those choices. Um and what impact might those choices have had? That this is a two-way street and, and these yeah. these pleas feel a little bit hollow and sometimes even sanctimonious, right? 
especially when we consider who is asking us to apologize, right? Oftentimes, these are our, our white folks who don't really appear to have a lot at stake um, <laughs> in, in these elections, right? And they're, and they're urging us to immediately forgive so that we can all start over. But I think the premise there is that this, these people who have supported Trump are willing to start over. And in many cases, Trumpism and Trump's followers are not actually going away. They are not willing to do that work. Right. Uh, you know, but to say, like, you guys need to forgive this person, it's a, it's a way of basically getting us resetting things to the status quo and saying there's going to be no paradigm shift, right? We're not going to ask for any major changes. We're just going to let things go back to being how they were, and you're going to make nice and let that happen. So I guess my, my next question is, you've talked about this concept of repentance, mm-hmm. and I, I also understand that you have interpreted repentance through something called the shuva. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, shuva is the, is the Jewish word for repentance, though it, okay. it has slightly different meanings, but yeah. And so what are these six steps to tshuva that I need to know or that we should keep in mind as we are dealing with Joe Biden's America? <laughs> it's the, the next chapter. Um, so Maimonides, who is a 12th century Torah scholar, philosopher, doctor, you know, didn't get a lot of sleep, um, was a great thinker, took a lot of stuff in the classical literature and formulated these six steps. Um, Five, probably, really. So the kind of pre-step, the sixth, is this cheshbon and nefesh, this um, accounting of the soul. And then once you've done that and figured out what the thing is, then we get to really step one, which is public confession, um, or at least proportionate confession. Um, So if I said something racist in a staff meeting, I need to at least put it on Slack or make my confession in the staff meeting. If I tweeted something, then I need to put it out on Twitter, right? If I said something... If it's something really about my intimate relationship, you know, uh, you know, in my personal life, like maybe you just say it directly to the person who's who's harmed. But but there needs to be some kind of like really clear owning what you did. Step one. Step two, beginning the work of transformation. Right. Why? You know, once you realize that you did a thing that was harmful, then what can you do to be different and not be that guy anymore? And so is that education? Is that reading books? Is that therapy? Is that rehab? Is that having to sit really still and listen to people who were hurt by what you did um, and have to really take it in, right? And really get it in a new way. Like, what do you need in order to change and to, to figure out how you can be a person who is not the kind of person that does this harmful thing. So that's step two. And then there's amends, which is what is it appropriate reparation? Is it donating money somewhere? Is it paying somebody's medical bills? Is it actually they don't, you have to do it in relationship with the victim. So like if the victim says, yes, you stepped on my foot, but I have great health care. What I need is for you to pay for somebody to come clean my house because I can't do that now because my foot's broken, right? You know, but like, is it donating your time uh, to an, an appropriate organization? Is it becoming an advocate uh, in a new way, right? But like you have to put some something of yourself into the work, um, you, you know, 
you created a breach in the universe and now you have to do something to sew it up, then it's apology, right? We're already all the way in this journey. And now finally you get to have the opportunity to say that you're sorry to the person. Mm. Um, yeah. And hopefully by the time you've gotten to that, it's not, you're not reading some statement your publicist wrote, right? This is like, <laughs> it's going to mean something because you've already been doing the work and you get on a different level what you did. Um, and the person you hurt is not required to accept your apology, even if it's sincere, even if you're doing the work. Um, and you have to go back at least three times. After the third time, you're off the hook. Um, but if they say no, get out of here. Like you have to go figure out what went wrong and then you can come back later and try again. Um, but the, like they don't necessarily owe you forgiveness. Um, and they're parallel tracks, right? The victim's process of forgiveness is not connected to the penitent person's uh, repentance, their chuva work, right? It's not like you put a dollar bill in the vending machine and you get out a cookie. You know what I mean? You don't put in your repentance work and get out forgiveness. Like you do your repentance work and maybe the person will forgive you and maybe they won't. And maybe you'll find out that they forgive you. They'll tell you and maybe they won't. Like maybe they'll forgive you internally and that's not something you ever get to find out about. You just have to do your work. Keep your eyes on your own blue book. Um, so that's apology. And then the last step is really key. When you have the opportunity to do the same harmful thing again, you make a different choice. Mm. So you... So Trump runs in 2024 and you don't go cast <laughs> your ballot for him. <laughs> right. It, you know, and and if... Um, if what's really, if you did your internal work and what's really was there is that you are having some white supremacy feelings and some possible, like, I'm not going to have the same kind of power feelings and I want to retain power, then actually you should be donating money to and canvassing for, you know, candidates of color, say, um, and doing that work and speaking out vocally for them, right? And becoming an advocate and becoming the kind of person. The whole thing is that by the end, you have changed so much through this process that you couldn't possibly imagine thinking that doing the harmful thing would be a good idea again. But Rabbi, so many people are going to listen to this and they're going to say, sure, this is if you've wronged someone in your community. But we're talking about the American electoral system. Mm. We're talking about politics. How could you possibly begrudge me my vote? It is my American right to vote. Why should I apologize to you for voting for Donald Trump? So this is the difference between uh, how Judaism looks at stuff and how American <laughs> culture looks at stuff. There are a lot of differences. Okay, okay, okay. Here's one of them. I'm loving them, by the way. I know. <laughs> You're welcome to Shabbos anytime. Um, <laughs> American culture is really, really, really big on rights. My right to not wear a mask. My right to carry a gun. Right. My right to right. My enti- it's a, this is entitlement, right? Me, me, me. I get to me. It's this individualism, right? My, my, right, mine. Uh, Judaism is about obligation. What am I obligated to do as a human being 
who's put on this planet, just a teeny tiny little person among lots and lots of people and knowing that my job is to take care of other people, right? Knowing that we are all in this together, that, I, you know, as I see it, we're all created in the divine image. I believe I'm commanded to pursue justice. And, you know, what is my right to do? Whatever. Like, what am I obligated to do? What are the choices I can make to create a world that has more light and safety for more people. Yes, that that makes sense, that your vote actually does have real-life implications for other people, even if you're not seeing them on your tax returns or in your backyard, it is impacting other people. There's another difference, I think, in this American idea of spiritual wholeness. Um, Maybe that's been perpetuated a little bit by this wellness kind of concept that's very popular right now, which is that one should not hold on to bad feelings. We should not hold on to anger. We should not hold grudges. Um, We should forgive because forgiveness heals our souls. And I offer you that because I wonder, like, from a spiritual perspective, if I go around and I'm still, you know, harboring or... And am I harboring something? Or if I'm not willing to forgive the Trump supporters, am I robbing myself of spiritual enlightenment, in your opinion? You know, uh, some of it is like what do you think forgiveness is, right? Um, There is, in Judaism, there are two levels. There is um, mechila, which is basically like, listen, we're good. You paid your debt to me. This, you know, like you stole my phone, but then you bought me a new phone and you fixed the data, you know, thing. So my old, my new phone is bad. Like, fine, we're good. I don't like you. I don't trust you, but we're, we're good. We're fine. Um, and that's one level. And then there's slicha, which is usually, you know, sort of the Christian idea of the sort of more empathetic, connective. I see that you are a vulnerable person and who is worthy of compassion. Um, and I think you can have the one without the other, uh, both kinds Right. I think you can say I can have compassion for the fact that you might have been feeling scared and also at the same time say, listen, you're an adult. And, you know, like at a certain point, you need to take responsibility for the fact that your choices have consequences. Right. You know, does forgiveness mean we're good? We can be friends again. Like forgiveness and re- reconciliation aren't the same thing. You know, does forgiveness mean everything's hunky dory kumbaya? Does forgiveness mean uh, I'm not angry, but we have to start over? Does for does anger always a toxic thing? Um, both Ibn Gabriel in my tradition and Audrey Lord in everybody's tradition, um, the great poet, thinker, um, essayist. Uh, but both talk about how anger, if you use it right, can be really helpful, right? It can be a rocket fuel for change. Um, you've, you, there are certain kinds of anger that, you know, like if you're not careful, it'll burn you up, right? But if you aim it correctly, it's like, you know, it can be used with laser precision to create change. Um, so I, I just sort of reject this, this notion that anger is categorically bad or that forgiveness is necessarily healing. 
maybe we stop telling oppressed people what they should feel and when they should feel it. Maybe we try to work towards systems and policies that are more just for more people and see what that does to people's mood. Is there anything that you look to, and and I don't want us to keep talking about Trump supporters. I want us to talk to everyone else for a second. Mm -hmm. How do we actually stay sane and safe and spiritually powerful in a moment when, even if we voted out the bad guy, there are, the odds are still somewhat stacked against us. I mean, listen, the systems that made 2016 possible are unchanged, are, are potentially worse given the, the ravages on the judiciary branch that have happened, right? Um, and so many other things that have happened this last chapter. Um you know, so many of our problems deal with the fact that uh, America never really wanted to do its repentance work for slavery and the genocide of Native Americans, right? Uh, you know, like there's this is the systems that we're dealing with now have a long, long, long tail. Um, the work is ongoing. You know, anybody that's not already totally burned out from the last few years is going to be totally burned out, right? Or give up or say, fine, I'm just going to sit on my couch or go back to brunch, which is like the ultra, ultra, ultimate privilege move, right? To say, I have the luxury of not worrying about justice anymore because I feel safer. Um, so what we need to do is find a practice that nourishes us and keeps us as whole as possible, whether that's prayer or meditation or long walks in nature or yoga or writing morning pages or making art or, you know, whatever the thing is, like do the thing that keeps you whole and do it again and again and again and again and let it hold you and then get back to work because we still have to fight for racial justice and economic justice and reproductive justice and so many other different kinds of justice. Um, and that work isn't going to uh, be obsolete anytime soon. So, Well, Rabbi Danya, thank you. That was, that was all for today. Thank you so much for joining me and, and thank you for your insight. Thank you. I, I really, really appreciate um, having your perspective. Thank you. Thank you for letting me come play. It's delightful to talk to you as always. Yes, likewise. It's our second time. So now it's a thing we do. Second time. Yes. And there will be more. Trust me. Yay. After the break, Pastor Mike joins me to talk about Jesus in the Second Amendment. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Businesses have had to be flexible this year. From working remotely to pivoting their business models for long-term survival and growth. Yes, that's right, Brian. And we've seen this in so many different ways. Restaurants mm -hmm. are moving their dining outdoors and adding takeout and catering. Some consumer packaged goods companies have shifted to focus more on surface cleaners or personal hygiene products. Shout out to that Lysol. And mm -hmm. major retailers are now selling face masks. It's true which I think is kind of major. Yeah. If you're in charge of hiring for your business, these pivots have made your job even more challenging, especially if you have to hire for brand new roles. Thankfully, there is one place that you can always count on to make hiring faster and easier, and that's ZipRecruiter.com slash unholy. When you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job boards with just one click. 
Just one click. And then ZipRecruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right skills and the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. So it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter, which is very close to all employers who post on ZipRecruiter, get a quality candidate within the first day. The first date. That sounds like a good deal to me. So see for yourself the magic of ZipRecruiter. Right now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash unholy. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash U-N-H-O-L-Y. Let ZipRecruiter take hiring off of your plate so you can focus on growing your business. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash unholy. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by Kitty Poo Club. Now, Phil, I don't have a cat, but correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you have a cat. I have two cats, Freddie and Juniper, and I love them so much, but I do not love how much they poo. When you have two cats, it is double the poo. Sometimes it feels like triple or quadruple the poo. And let me tell you, changing cat litter can be sort of a drag, obviously. Poo-poo to that, I say. Yeah, exactly. Thank goodness that Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by Kitty Poo Club, because changing my cat's litter is now so easy and not messy, and... I don't really have to worry that much all about it. Kitty Poo Club is an all-in-one litter box solution designed to be convenient for you. Every month, they deliver an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled with the litter of your choice. If you have cats, you know that they can be very picky about where they go poo. Um, They are a lot like humans in that way, and so therefore, that is a huge plus. The boxes are leak-proof, they are eco-friendly, and they have fun seasonal designs, which I think is kind of a bonus. When the month is up, just recycle the box and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you. No changing used litter and no more cleaning the box. You can customize your order based on how many cats you have, two for me, and what type of litter they might prefer. And Kitty Poo Club has a no-risk guarantee and you can easily customize or cancel any single time, which is major. That's I'm going to trade my dog for a cat because this sounds easier. Wow, look at that. Yeah. And tell us about the offers. Tell us about the offers, Brian. I w- I'm getting there, Phil. Sorry. Meow. And right now, right meow, Purr. Kitty Poo Club is offering you, yes, you, 20% off your first order when you set up auto ship by going to kittypooclub.com and entering promo code unholy. So just go to p- kittypooclub.com and enter promo code unholy to get 20% off when you set up auto ship. That's kittypooclub.com. And don't forget to enter promo code unholy at checkout. Purr. Purr. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by Bev. Brian, you like to drink. Phil, I love to drink. In fact, I have been drinking so much wine during Mm -hmm. the past six to seven months. And Mm -hmm. I just, I am so excited that we get, are here to talk to you today about a female founded and run wine business. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by Bev. Bev. Bev is a female first canned wine brand that was founded to change not only the way a product is consumed, but the way an industry and culture have operated for generations. In an industry that is almost exclusively masculine, um, which used to be the words on my grinder profile, love to surprise them. <laughs> Bev is breaking norms and creating something from the female perspective that is approachable, fun, and consumer-centric. They have three varietals, Rosé, Sauve Blanc, and Pinot Gris, as well as a limited edition, extra fizzy, sparkling white wine for the holidays. And you know I am going to need some extra fizzy wine for the holidays. Is that your favorite? Well, I haven't tried that one yet. But I like the rosé. My favorite thing about it is the portion control, because if you give me a bottle of rosé, the bottle will go away. But if you give me a can of rosé, I feel way better 
having finished that. Yes. Well, I, I have to disagree with you. My favorite is the Pinot Gris because for some reason I feel extremely French when I drink Pinot Gris and choose it mm-hmm. over Pinot Grigio. Mm-hmm. Emily in Paris. Yes, I am. I am living my Emily fantasy. Mm-hmm. But no matter which wine you choose, they are dry, crisp, a little fizzy, super refreshing and absolutely delicious. They also have zero sugar and mm-hmm. only three carbs and 100 calories per serving. So my nutritionist will be thrilled about this. <laughs> and the cans may look cute and tiny, but each can is actually a glass and a half of wine, Oy. which, yeah, surprise, surprise Perfect for me. me. <laughs> it's perfect for when you don't want to open a bottle of wine just for yourself. Um, and a 24-pack is actually equal to eight bottles of wine, so it is surprisingly economical. And that's a single Thanksgiving at my house. Okay, well, I might need two 24-packs for my Thanksgiving. But anyways, <laughs> the four-packs are perfect and the cutest holiday gift for everyone on your list. Bev ships straight to your door and shipping is always free. And we have worked out an exclusive deal for Unholier Than Now podcast listeners. Receive 20% off your first purchase, plus free shipping on all orders. And I suggest trying their best-selling Ladies' Night Variety Pack so you can check out all their (laughs) Ladies' Night Variety Pack. So check out all their delicious varietals. Go to drinkbev.com slash unholy or use the code unholy at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V dot com slash unholy. Yeah, cheers. For an unholy night. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. While some of us have been preoccupied with forgiveness, especially as we head into the holiday season, the rest of us may have more pressing matters on our minds. President Trump began a purge immediately after the election. First, Secretary of Defense Mike Esper, then the top Pentagon policy official, then the top Defense Department intelligence official, and then the chief of staff to the defense secretary. At the same time, Mike Pompeo told reporters that he's working diligently to ensure a smooth transition into the second term of the Trump administration. And that's even though these assholes lost re-election. Lost pretty big, too. Many of us fear that this is just the beginning, that maybe there's a coup coming that will require us to be out in the streets, and maybe this is about to get really brutally, painfully ugly. So even I couldn't help but imagine, what would I do to protect myself if everything in America goes to shit? That's why I wanted to talk to Pastor Mike, a faith leader who's been working in gun and violence prevention for years. Pastor Mike is here to explain the so-called religious motives behind the Second Amendment, and maybe why we should all reconsider how we define the word safety. Pastor Mike, thanks for being here. Man, it's great to be here with you, good brother, and uh, glad to be in the building one more time. One more time. Well, listen, I know that in 2013, you were invited on a panel with our now president-elect Joe Biden to discuss gun control. And I'm wondering, based on that conversation and the action taken by that administration, how are you feeling about the direction we are hopefully heading after electing Joe Biden to be our president? Well, I definitely think we have a better chance of getting the agenda we care about 
pushed through the federal government with this administration, not just this president, but remember, Joe Biden will have an administration, he'll have department heads, he'll have people that I believe will share some of our priorities and the kind of philosophical underpinnings of how we address issues related to public safety, policing, the economy, um, et cetera, particularly as it relates to black people in most marginalized groups. So um, I, I don't have, uh, you know, ultimate faith in Joe Biden, per se. I do have uh, more faith in this administration to get it right. I, I do wonder, uh, it is confusing sometimes to see very religious people holding a gun over their Bible and to see the massive amounts of support for the Second Amendment and and gun rights among white conservative Christians. Is there a reason that religion is seems to be so entangled in this gun control conversation in America? Well, I think we have to always remember that uh, white Christianity in this country is likely not the best example of Christian faith <laughs> in the world. You don't or, say. Or in history. I was on a call yesterday with some white evangelicals who, you know, are trying to lean into justice. And I said, it seems like the longer uh, white folks are Christians in this country, the less human they become. And so I think Ooh. it's really important. How did they respond to that? Oh, you know, I don't know. I don't I don't be really caring that much. I, I just I just <laughs> I just try to I just try to give give them give it to them how the spirit leads me to talk and let let God do the rest. Right. But I do think that the uh, the the use of religion in this country, particularly at its inception, uh, was needed to um, make moral sense of slavery and genocide and imperialism. And so all of those things require the use of a gun. I mean, you're not taking over people unless you have force and weapons that can subjugate them with fear and death. And so I think that practice has become the muscle memory of most Americans in this country. And because that violence is so palpable, then black people and other groups have had to likely buy into that kind of violence as a preemptive or a or a uh, a feeling of, of defense uh, against the kind of ubiquitous nature of violence aimed at our folks. And so the, the issue of the gun in this country is quite problematic. Um, I think we can have common sense gun laws without having to go like into an all out war on the Second Amendment. But if I could wave my magic wand, I'd get rid of every weapon in the world. And go back to just uh, the fisticuffs if we have to solve <laughs> some disagreements beyond our words, you know. OK, that that's interesting because, you know, one of the things that um, I've noticed on the reporting that's been happening in, in recent months, uh, the 19th, for example, just ran a piece about how LGBTQ folks, women and people of color are actually buying guns at higher rates in the past six months because of this fear that people have which, by the way, I do not think is an unfounded fear that things are headed south so quickly and division is so intense in this country that we are going to need to arm ourselves because, look, it doesn't look like the good guys have guns. It looks like all the bad guys do, though. So what do you offer as a person of faith to those people who are so afraid that they are willing to sort of betray their better judgment to go get a gun? Well, I, I would encourage us uh, to to not give ourselves over to fear. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think we should, you know, imagine what is the what is the 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 set of actions we can take that 
give us the ability to have self-defense, right? And as we have self-defense, we also are working to ensure that the kind of recklessness or the, the use of violence in our culture is directly addressed. Um, I don't own a gun because I want to continue to be a nonviolent person. Um, the, the data tells us that if you own a gun, you, you or your family member are more likely to be harmed by that gun you own than the person who you're buying the gun to protect yourself from. And that bears itself out in suicides and domestic violence and accidental shootings, right? And so it 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 is a false sense of security to buy a gun to try and protect yourself from the kind of very real expressions of of very armed individuals who are quite, you know, um uh maniacal in how they're showing up in a public space. But I would just caution us to not you know, allow them to bring death into our own home uh, because we're trying to guard against the death that we uh, have yet to concretely uh, be visited by. It is quite a conundrum. That's why I think we should lean into our our faith traditions, our kind of uh, commitments to love and care for one another across difference, across race, across gender and sexuality and all of these different things that really, um, you know, seek to divide us rather than bring us together. Well, on the topic of faith, you mentioned that white Christianity has used uh, violence or has been able to justify violence, obviously, through imperialism and, and colonialism. So they found their excuse. Can you tell me a little bit about what you preach and, and what scripture you're drawing from to talk to your clergy members, you know, and, and your parish about um, the the reason that we need to choose nonviolence. Like, what what are you drawing from? Yeah, well, you know, Jesus obviously is uh, our most important and and concrete example. The life of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, um, and uh, Jesus, as we understand um, Jesus in in the scriptures, uh, is described and believed to have been the most powerful human being, literally, to ever walk the earth. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus was there at the beginning. Uh, Jesus had the ability to uh, think people into existence and out of existence. And yet Jesus, through his life, showed us that in order to be human, he voluntarily gave up his privilege to walk among those who had none. Uh, the scripture actually mm. says he voluntarily emptied himself. The Greek word is kenosis. He willingly emptied himself of privilege to learn obedience, even the death of the cross, which just means that Jesus could have used violence to in, ensure victory over enemies. But rather than that, he chose to use nonviolence and love and a life lived in such a way that it left such an undeniable mark on the people who encountered him, that his memory, his teachings, and dare I say, the salvation he brought lives on beyond the kind of battles and victories he could have won with with uh, knives and, and, and chariots and horses. And so I try to encourage our people to live into that example and to remind ourselves that the weapons we fight are not of human origin, but they are mighty through the power of love, through the God we serve. And we have to do all we can to not uh, um, fall into the trap of violence and, and racism and otherism and dehumanization. Even when we don't always agree with people, we don't have to 
you know, harm them physically. <laughs> we don't have to, right. you know, give them emotional and psychological terror because uh, you don't agree with them. I tell my congregation, you don't agree with yourself half the time. So, like, you know, what's the, <laughs> what's the big deal? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Well, that was a um, that was really beautiful. Thank you, thank you for sharing that. But Pastor Mike, one one of the reasons you're here today with me is because you're not just preaching this, right? You are actually practicing this. You are involved in so much community outreach and so much legislative and legal outreach to help change the ways in which Americans think about violence. And, and you are actively working to help save lives. Can you tell us a little bit about what that work is and what that work looks like? Yeah, well, you know, we we lead an effort for at least the past decade that has been attempting to organize churches, congregations, synagogues, mosque temples, and even people who may not identify as a person of faith. We usually just say people of goodwill uh, to end the era of gun violence and mass incarceration of black people, brown people and other marginalized groups in this country. We know that violence and incarceration is not an accident. It is a um, result of bad policies and disinvestments that bring a kind of misery to such a head that hopelessness grips the heart of those who have uh, very little or who are under such extreme stress. They know no other way to respond to the to the pain they feel. And so we organize at the local, state and federal levels to help implement proven gun violence prevention strategies that reduce the number of gun-related shootings and homicides without sending more people to jail. Uh, we work to change policies that keep black and brown and other folks in jails and prisons longer than they should. We try to restore the rights of those who have criminal convictions so they can vote and have jobs and have access to housing. Um, but we also work to address police violence. Uh, I myself have been a victim of police violence. I was physically and sexually assaulted in 1999 by two police officers in the course of an arrest. So sorry. Yeah. And it, it, it totally triggered trauma for me that I still obviously have to deal with to this day. But it does remind me that you can be, quote unquote, doing everything right and still run into state violence um, at the hands of police. And so we have to really rethink, reimagine, dare I say, radically transform public safety in this country and the use of police and their methods of violence in order to secure a peace um, in our communities. And so that's the work we do. We organize, we protest, we write policy, we lobby, we get people out to vote, we give out hugs, we, we feed people, we take folks to lunch, we do whatever it takes to build a coalition of uh, peace and justice and love and uh, I think we're going to win. I, matter of fact, I believe we're going to win. And uh, I'm glad the devil is on the run because we plan to keep him on the run. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. My next question for you was, are you hopeful? You know, that the gun, um, the gun violence fight has been long and hard and Republican politicians especially have been pretty hardlined against uh, gun control legislation. And I know, you know, especially from watching the past couple of years, how demoralizing it could be to consistently go up and lose these fights. But where are you seeing the wins? Like how, what wins are keeping you motivated? That's a great question. You know, I, and I love to, you know, just say to younger people, you know, um, we are not a people of hopelessness, you know, and I know we, we've come of age in a kind of Obama era where, you know, hope was like 
so concrete. And then you got the dump truck presidency and it felt like all the helium got let out of a balloon. But we as a people um, have always, as Angela Davis reminded us, been committed to freedom. That is a constant struggle. And so the struggle is made um, constant by the hope we can tap into, the hope of our faith, the hope of our ancestors, the hope of the wins, and even the losses that we experience uh, throughout life, knowing that as long as we are alive and the sun rises, we can indeed build off of our experiences of yesterday and yesteryear and make some big leaps. And so uh, I do believe that the hope that is found in the gun violence prevention movement is found with the people who are the closest to the pain, uh, the heroes. I call them superheroes, super sheroes who are in every urban community across the country waking up every day to interrupt gun violence. They don't use weapons. They don't use jails. They use their words and their arms and the pennies in their pockets to interrupt conflicts between Pookie and Ray Ray and Jose and Pe Pe Pod Padre and, and uh, Maria and Shanene. And, you know, we, we out here in these streets and we're literally reducing gun-related shootings and homicides using public health strategies without sending people to jail. Now, obviously, in the last year with this pandemic, a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, We've had to pull a lot of our work back because we just couldn't be out in the streets. And that's why I think um, the shootings are up in a lot of cities, because we were literally scaling gun violence prevention work across the country in so many cities. And then overnight, we all had to shut it down because of the pandemic. And if you don't give people the medicine, then they will likely fall back into their illness. And so I hope that this administration and all of us across the country that uh, show up at hospitals to interrupt violence, that show up in schools and on blocks, that bring uh, people caught in cycles of violence into conversations with each other, that we can scale that work back up over the next six months and get the, the shootings up back under control. And we can then take resources from police departments and put them into scaling up public health interventions that uh, save lives and don't incarcerate people. That is the hope that I see. Uh, the ground is shifting. Uh, consensus is changing. People are starting to appreciate that we don't have to only fight Second Amendment fights in order to reduce gun violence. We can indeed scale up programs that work and we can build coalitions across all these differences to make peace in our communities a reality. So many of the people listening are going to be as moved as I am by your words and want to help help you help the movement. What are the things that we should be doing? Oh, man, that's great. So I, I always tell people, put some DAP on it, man. DAP is an acronym. Donate, advocate, participate. You can go to livefreeusa.org. And if you have $5, $10, $100 uh, one time $500. or a month. Oh yeah, or you know, hey, if you're rolling like that, give us give us what you got. Send send the black <laughs> preacher a tithe. Somebody say amen. No, um, <laughs> no, but but really, um, donating to our work helps us to hire people with criminal convictions or folks who've come out of these uh, conflicts, and we literally hire people to be peacemakers in communities. Um, donating helps us to uh, make sure we're able to pass legislation at the local, state, and federal level so we can scale this work up and get it funded by our local tax base. So donate's important. Advocate. We want you to help us amplify these solutions by calling your mayor, calling your police chief, calling your governor, calling your congressional representative, and tell them to fund 
public health gun violence prevention efforts. Tell them to reallocate dollars away from policing and into mental health and gun violence prevention programs. So advocate, use your voice, send a text message, send an email, go to liveforusa.org, sign up and get our alerts and uh, petitions, and then participate. In your city, there is, I'm sure, a group of uh, frontline intervention specialists. We call them uh, change agents or peacemakers. And show up and help us. We do night walks, peace walks. Uh, people need mentoring. People need food. People need diapers and pampers. People need all kind of things that can help uh, them uh, make a different decision. And so donate, advocate, participate. Put some dap on it, man. Put some dap on it, comrade, and help us uh, save some lives. Excellent. Okay. Writing down, put some dap on it. We'll absolutely remember that. Pastor Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all of your hard and inspiring work. Man, thank you for having me. Y'all stay strong and stay, stay safe. Well, folks, that's all for our show today. If you liked what you hear, please give us a rating, leave a review, and help stick it to Mitch McConnell by donating to the Democrats in Georgia's Senate races. Stay safe, stay sane, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time. Holier Than Thou is a Crooked Media production. Brian Semmel is our associate producer and Sydney Rapp is our assistant producer with production support from Ruben Davis. The theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa and the show is executive produced by me, Lyra Smith, and Sarah Geismer. Thanks for listening. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.